Hello and welcome to Hammer Time. I'm Rachel. I'm Kaylee, And we are auctioneers. People always say to us, you must have the best job in the world. Well, not to be too smug, but we actually do. We have turned our interests and passions into a job. Yeah, quite literally living the dream. We talk about objects, history, stories, and what it is like to be a working mum in this crazy business. There is beauty, excitement, and stories you literally won't believe. So Kaylee, why are we doing these podcasts? We are not your stereotypical example of a tweedy red trousered man with a new breed of auctioneers and quite frankly nerds so join us as we delve into the weird and wonderful world of antiques and auctions what is the plan today rachel well we are really excited this is our very first episode of hammer time and today we are joined by the legend that is philip serrell he's going to be talking all about well over 30 years experience in the business he's on been on every tv show and he's written loads of books and we've discovered this week he's a pop star as well i literally cannot believe that i was so excited to hear about that so what else have we got kaylee well you found us an object to talk about in object of the week i certainly we have and then we will finish by making philip play smash cash stash so kaylee before philip joins us and uh tells us all his tales how's your week been what have you been up to oh it's been amazing okay. you can't believe where i've been go on tell me so you know usually it's quite dusty attics and the like this week i actually went back in time to blockbuster video circa 1994 <laughs> what like an <laughs> so you actually went back to a blockbuster what's still in the building or what so it's a man who he did work for blockbuster it's in the man, 90s yes and he has built himself a blockbuster video inside a storage container and it is absolutely epic it looks exactly as you'd expect oh my gosh this sounds amazing i so remember going to blockbuster video always got fines not dropping them through the letterbox quick enough the next uh, the next day or so so what's happening are we so we selling these items are we are we selling blockbuster are we selling videos yeah so we're going to start selling videos the vhs market is really up and coming at the moment and it's something that people are quite surprised about because you know five years ago yeah i'm surprised about it yeah but what we're finding is um that pre-certification videos so when videos first came out in 1978 yeah they didn't have to be age rated or anything like that oh okay so, so anyone could have gone, just gone to the video shop and just got whatever they wanted yeah and it also meant that companies could release basically whatever they wanted so they could put all the gore in if they were oh, horror okay. companies do extended cuts and it's the stuff that wouldn't have made it into the cinema so it's the pre-certification seems yeah. to be some to say and is it any other genre it does tend to mostly be in horror um, okay because that that's where all the really unusual stuff that you've never been able to see in any other format is so we're not talking like uh peter pan or dumbo that i had in 1987 no no, no. that's not gonna be valuable because though. everybody had disney videos didn't they yeah, and very true there's lots of stuff on the internet about black diamond releases <laughs> yeah there's this myth isn't there that you've told me about yeah about the black diamond go and go and check it out people and go and have a look at this uh this comedy thing about the black diamond but it's it's not true but if you've got your um horror videos pre i think it's 1984 when certification come in that's what that's what we're looking for that's what you want to see yeah fantastic okay so that's coming up uh early next year you're selling all those aren't you yeah and how about you how's your week been it's been a busy one it's been a really busy one well it's obviously uh you know kelly and i are mums we both have uh, daughters the same age and uh, it's nativity week this week isn't it kelly it well, is. what's your daughter what's she what's she playing she's she playing... nailed the main part or yeah, she's uh, a piece of hay oh, that's, that's interesting interesting costume choice for that so um yeah you know we like to fit in <laughs> we like to fit these in in our daily week we are full-time auctioneers and mums at the same time so you know here we go we are we are living the dream <laughs> on very little sleep yeah but we are very lucky that we we are allowed to duck out and go and yeah. do these things yeah it's amazing well thank you kaylee and oh i think philip's coming in now let's uh let's have a chat with him morning welcome philip serrell to uh our podcast welcome to hammer time Hammer time, is that what it's called? That's yeah. good, that is me. exactly what it's called. Now, before we let you let you go with all your stories, all the gold, can we just do a little bit of an intro for you? Go on then. We've done our research. Oh, dear, dear, okay. dear, dear, dear. 
Philip Serrell is an auctioneer and television presenter, well known to viewers of Bargain Hunt, Flog It, Antiques Road Trip. He is usually seen wearing his trademark scarf. He's actually got one on today, thank you. And he has been an auctioneer for over 30 years, beginning in the livestock trade after previously working as a PE and geography teacher. Mm. Now we need to go back and discuss all of this, Philip, but for now I should carry on. In 1995, you established your own auction house, Philip Serrell Auctioneers in Worcestershire, selling fine art and antiques. Philip is also an author, a chart-topping pop star, <laughs> having reached the top of the Amazon and iTunes charts three times with charity singles. He loves classic. He loves classic cars, particularly Aston Martins, and collects all kinds of tat. Correct. <laughs> that all right? <laughs> Wrap it up. We're all done. No, you, see, you see, the thing is, you've got some of this information off, in, off Wikipedia, right? And, Absolutely. Uh, yeah, and and you should. I'll just tell you a little story. So I, I wrote a book, and um, I, I did another. Um, television program and at the end of it this guy turned around to me he said of course a lot of people don't realize that you're a very very accomplished musician aren't you and I thought what is he talking about and, and I just same thing fudged it didn't say and, and I did about another eight interviews and every person <laughs> came out with of course a lot of people don't realize that you're a very accomplished musician aren't you so it's absolute rubbish you're not so at the last one I said to this the guy said to me of course a lot of people don't realize that you're a very accomplished musician aren't you and I said, where have you got this from? And he said, well, well, it's on your Wikipedia page. It says there that Philip Searle is an accomplished Cornish pl cornet player who plays in a local brass ensemble. Well, for those of you who don't know, right, I have, there's a lovely cameraman who thinks it's great fun to mess with my Wikipedia page. Oh, that's amazing. So I have been... Hang on, Kayleigh, we'll be in that later. So I, I, I have been... I've been the biggest UK collector of Beanie Babies, oh. and, and I've been an accomplished cornet player and, and other things. So you don't want to believe everything that you read on Wikipedia. That's the first thing. And the second thing is it must be out of date because you said 30 years, which flatters me probably by about 15. Well, let's just go with that then. 30 I'm very years. happy with that. Oh, you know, that, that's like a, a, a kind of virtual facelift for me. Isn't Man and boy, hey. Oh, well, yeah. So you said you've been doing this for more than 30 years. Uh, tell us about the start. You got started in the livestock trade. So my first day at work um, was for a firm called Bentley Hobbs & Mitten, actually, whose poster is hanging in this office. <laughs> we how how you've come to have my poster in here, I don't know. Anyway, so I worked for Bentley Hobbs & Mitten. My first boss um, employed me, and on my first, in my interview, he said to me, you've got to wear a pinstripe suit to work. So I rocked, this was on the Friday for my interview, I rocked up to work on the Monday and it was starting to rain and I hadn't had a pinstripe suit so I went and borrowed some money off the old man to buy a pinstripe suit and I went down to Worcester Market and they made me draw sheep. Now I at the time thought I got to start sketching sheep. <laughs> I didn't realise that what you actually had to do was get into a sheep pen and grab hold of the sheep by the wool and lift them up with your knees behind there behind and sort of sort them out by size. So it, it started to rain and I'm in this sheep pen with my 48 hour old pinstripe suit and he got covered in the proverbial. Yeah. And all these miserable old farmers who were present, Chris and me, they said, oh, their ship suit look. So I became <laughs> this whole generation of thoroughly bloody miserable old farmers ship suit. <laughs> And it carried on because... Why the pinstripe suit then? What, what, oh, that just he, he, was no, he, he was forgetful. My, my first boss was very forgetful. <laughs> so in the morning, I, uh, the, my first day at work, I walked into the office, having him given me a job two days previously, and he greeted with me, hello, um, can I help you? No. And I said, yeah, you gave me a job. He said, did I? And I yeah, you did. Oh, right. You better pop down the market then. So that was him. And then... <clears throat> Two weeks later, I went into work and um, I was made to go to Bromyard Market with Dickie Wilton, who was the, the salary manager. Mm. And I got into his car and as I sat in the car, where my feet went, there was a biscuit tin full of mud and feathers. And I'd learned, been there two weeks at work, I'd learned not to ask any questions. Mm. And, and we set off straight ahead, which was strange because Bromyard was turning left. We went straight on and Dickie arrived at this farm. And... Um, he um, he said, hold on a minute. And he came back with those big two and a half dozen egg trays that farmers' wives yeah, have yeah. and plonked them onto the transmission tunnel between me. And he said, um, while we're going to Bromyard, you can make yourself useful. I said, what do you want me to do? He said, get an egg 
he said, rub it in some of that mud in that tin down there. He said, on every fourth one, put a feather on it and then put it in the half dozen egg cartons that I've got on, in the cup. And I look around, there's a pile of half dozen egg cartons. So I'm going to Bromyard and I'm getting at these eggs and I'm going picking up one, right. two, three in the mud, four in the mud, add a feather to that one, put it in the carton. <laughs> so off we go, right? And we get to Bromyard Market. And when we got there, we only ever had six cattle at Bromyard Market. And it was my job to book them in. Mm. And I didn't know whether they were... I mean, although I'm a farmer's son, I had no idea. I spent all the time on all fours trying to work out if there's a cow here for a bullock or a steer. <laughs> and while I was booking in the cattle, Dickie went round all the local farmers selling his own organic free-range eggs. Oh, right? no. So golden days. And then when the market finished, it was my job and his job to get the cattle out of the market. And... Um, and so the first five, we had, we had six cows there, and the first five cows had learned that you that, that you couldn't drive a cattle truck into the market. So it was parked on the road with the ramp down behind it. And the first five cows we led out straight into the cattle truck and off they went. The sixth cow came out, put its front feet on the ramp of the cattle truck, its rear feet on the road and wouldn't move. And so Dickie and I are pushing and shoving this thing and it wouldn't have it at all. And... Um, and there's two or three farmers watching this pantomime. And Dickie turned around to me. He said, I've heard up the north of cows. And if you grab hold of a cow's tail and turn it clockwise, it'll move. And I'm thinking, oh, my life, you know, really? So go on, what happened? So I've got, I've got this cow's tail and I'm trying to turn it clockwise. Well, it didn't move at all. And Dickie said, well, it might have been anti-clockwise. <laughs> so I got his tail out and I started winding it the other way and it still wouldn't move. And Dickie then turns around and he said, um, you've played rugby, haven't you? And I said, yeah, I have a bit. He said, I'll tell you what we'll do. We'll get down like Billy Beaumont, one of those second row forwards, behind the cow's hock mm. at the rear, mm. and we'll push. And we'll soon have it in. And I'm thinking, oh, this is just going to go horribly, horribly wrong. I can almost see where this is going to go well, in a minute. There's about it? 10 old farmers are now watching this. Yeah. Right? And, and, you can, and I heard the one go, oh, it's ship suit again. This will be... <laughs> you know? And so I'm down there pushing and shoving. And the good Lord didn't give me too much to look at, but I'm very conscious that I was going to get a kick in the face. Mm -hmm. So as I'm looking down at this hoof, kind of pushing like a rugby player, I thought I'm going to twist my head so that if it kicks me, it doesn't kick me in the nose or the teeth, it hits me on the side of the head. And as I, as I turned my head, I could now see about 20 of these miserable old farmers. All I could see was the cow's tail lift, mm. right? Oh, and it was cold. And if you haven't had this experience, it was like having half a bucket of lukewarm wallpaper paste. Well, yeah, that's like, that's that experience. Okay, it's quite yeah. So it, it hit me on the head. Yeah. Right? And it was quite warming as it ran down. <laughs> and that was the end of livestock markets for me. Right. So that was the point you went, you know, well, I'm, I'm done with cows. I'm yeah, move I on had, the absolutely. Antique. Yeah, had enough of that. Yeah. So well, it, was, it was like hard work and it was cold. I yeah. You know, I just didn't fancy that at all. So that was a pass for me. Okay. Um, That's how you started. Yeah. What made you go for that in the first place? I was teaching Henry H. Coventry, and I was doing an A-level express form. They were very bright boys who were doing their A-levels in a year. And um, I was this little lad seemed to stuck his hand up, as I recall, and said, Sir, could you please explain the theory of the late heat of the evaporated rain particles? as they pass over the Rockies. I got the first idea what he was talking about. <laughs> and I turned around to some other little lad whose name I remember was Johnson. I said, Johnson, what do you think? And he said something. I didn't understand that either. And I thought, this is enough for me. Yeah. And so my parents farmed in Hartlebury mm -hmm. and my old man had a capacity to turn wine into water. And um, I can remember it was a horrible day and he just got back from market mm -hmm selling nets of sprouts for 75 pence and it cost him 80 pence mm. to get picked. So you were you were from a farming background. You oh, yeah, 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 yeah. It was yeah. almost you were going to head in some sort well, of direction. Well, yeah, and, and, and so I can remember leaning on the back of a rusting transit pickup, mm. looking at four and a half acres of rotting sprouts. And the old man said to me, do you want to come into the family business? I thought, my God, you must be joking. Mm. You know, it looks like hard work and, you know, and as I say, he'd just driven up to Wolverhampton to lose 5p a net at least on everything he yeah, sold. Yeah. So I just, he said, so we got, I played a lot of cricket that year. And um, it was a lovely summer, 1976. Got a few runs as well. And, um, and that it, means absolutely no, 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 Well, it's got nothing to do with the stomach functions or anything. Like that. <laughs> anyway, so I, um, I, uh, 
he just said to me, what are you going to do? And I've been to farm sales with him. And I said, and I don't know where it came from. And I said, uh, oh, I'm going to be an auctioneer. And I kind of think, you know, I, I perhaps ahead of my time was thinking I might be, you know, starting a gap year. No one did them then. And yeah. I think he could see it turning into a gap life and didn't right. quite share my enthusiasm for it. And so I just said, I'm going to get a job. I, he said, I'm, I said, I'm going to be an auctioneer. And then the next thing was he expected me to go and be one, you know. So I went and joined Bentley, Hobbs and Mitten. Auctioneers value. This is funny. So I went and joined Bentley, Hobbs and Mitten, auctioneers value as stage agents and surveyors established 1791. And I went there for an interview and I walked into the office and the two ladies looked like they'd been there on the opening night. You know? <laughs> I know, I know the type. This, but this kills me because they used to smoke 40 Benjamin Hedges a day each, right? Really? Those were the days when offices were like a kipper factory. Sat at your desk, yeah. having a five. Yeah. yeah, so they smoked 40 Benjamin Hedges a day each and they drank lemon tea because it was good for you. And I could never quite get the correlation between yeah. the two. But, you know, they were happy days. Different days today. So then you ended up... You so were director, I, and then you ended up taking over the company. No, yeah, I liked it so much. I bought the company. Yeah. No, so we we um we had sixteen offices, and we sold out to Hamptons in nineteen eighty something or other. And then the, the opportunity came for me to buy my salary room back in nineteen ninety five, which I did basically because I'm unemployable. Um, you know, Why are you unemployable? Would you employ me? Yeah. Really? Definitely. No, you need help. Oh, no. Like taking a tea or something. Well, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Cleaning the sheet pen. <laughs> yeah. No, so I, I just, I, I work for myself because I have a fairly strong work ethic. My first boss was a great man, right? Because his ethic, his, his attitude to work was, if if the day had a Y in it, you worked. Yeah. And if it was light, you worked. And if it was dark, you sometimes worked. Right. Okay. You know. Yeah, and, I know and, the time. And um, he he could be the most cantankerous. He had a, he had this tin leg. Had it shot off two days before the end of the Second World War. Oh. And he could be the most cantankerous, miserable, stubborn, cussed. But he he was the best. In those were the days almost when I mean my my starting wage was eight quid a week. Yeah. And um, and I was really really lucky because my parents expected to have to pay to have me articled, yeah. you know, in those yeah. days, you know, which is cheap labour at the best, really. Um, but so, but he was a good mentor because he kind of his attitude to life was. I mean, he, he would just be bankrupt today because his attitude to life was: you do the best by your client. Yeah. And I can imagine that's where you go. Yeah. Today. Well, it, it, you, see, you see, the thing is, you see, I mean, I can remember him having, when he died, I had the job of, of clearing out, or we moved house, sorry, before he died. And um, we had a house in the middle of Worcester with six acres of land. Right. And in the old days when I started, every sale had a Burko boiler, <laughs> um, a, 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 um, some stuffed birds, and various <laughs> other stuff, you know. But any, anything of the sale wasn't selling, he bought it. So he had the finest collection of rotting, rusting rolls of barbed wire. Mm -hmm. Kilner jars. You're both too young to remember. No, Kilner. no, no. They're very trendy right. again now. Well, there you go. He's ahead of his time. So he, he had acres of all this rud. Yeah. Right. Did you have to clear it all out? Yeah. You know, and then I did the same thing. Did you not collect them? No, no, no. I ended up, because I, he used to buy stuff because he felt sorry that the client wasn't getting it, no one was bidding for uh, it. Okay. So when I had his sale, I ended up buying the same crud that, <laughs> of him so that he didn't think he hadn't made anything. You know? So you've got this kind of perpetual, so my daughter yeah. one day is going to have to sell loads of crud that I've got. So you've got sheds and rooms of and crud. with all sorts of... Oh, rubbish. Absolutely rubbish, rubbish, yeah. This is your little nugget in there. Okay, so then, so let's talk about your TV stuff because that's let's let's be honest. But everybody knows you off the telly. Mm. Talking about antiques, so talking rubbish. Where did that start? How did that how did that come about? Because that's what people want to know about. They want to know how did because you were right there at the start, weren't you? And right at the beginning, you're one of the sort of well, I did the very first bargain they ever did. Well, they and, and I did it. the very first road trip they ever did, and I did the very first. There was a lady and. Um, she said to me, we're going to do this new programme called Barking Hunt and we'd very much like you to appear on it. What year was that then? So how 1999. Wow, 1999, OK. We recorded the programme in November 1999 mm. and it got broadcast in 2000. And um, and I refused to do it on time. Um, the, the, that was the second reason. The third reason um, was because I thought it'd be good for my business and it's been brilliant. 
And the fourth reason, probably the most important, was they said, we'll pay you. Um, <laughs> obviously not enough <laughs> and nothing like what I'm worth. But so, um, and so that's what happened, you know. And But the thing is, if you... The thing about doing telly is no one ever tells you how to do telly. You kind of left your own device. Well, that's it. You're an auctioneer, aren't you? That's, yeah. that's the thing. You don't. Yeah. I mean, Kaylee's just literally off the back of doing Cash in the Attic now. Do you enjoy it? I did quite. I, I liked about Cash in the Attic. That's none of them. They never last. Yeah. And 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 now you know you can't. I mean, my, my father had a stroke, um, and he was kind of paralysed and in bed oh, for God. seven years. And his biggest gripe was that he couldn't. Avoid watching me on the telly because <laughs> he couldn't get out of bed oh, to no. turn it off, you know. Um, but nowadays, there's everything is on TV, isn't it? Yeah, well, that's it. You get but going back to what you said before, nobody teaches you how to do TV. No. We're auctioneers, but I suppose being an auctioneer is a little bit like that for people that you know, and being a teacher, and being a yeah. teacher yeah, because you're standing, standing on so many, aren't you? You're sort of yeah, you're, showing you're, the best you're, of yourself, you're holding an audience, yeah, exactly. And some of them might be there because they want to be, and some of them might be there because yeah. they have to be yeah. in school. But you have to hold an audience and you have to kind of have, you have to speak with some authority, um, you know. And it's quite funny because I, the very first contract I had from the BBC, I refused to sign it because they wanted to call me an expert. Right. And I'm quite... You don't true. consider yourself an expert. No, 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 no. But I think that's the biggest thing that most people will say. As soon as you call anybody an expert... Most talk to will be like, oh, no, hold on. Yeah, you're sort of putting yourself oh, really no. out there. Well, you? I know a few that think they are, but <laughs> I just, no, I'm not an expert, and I've got no claim to be an expert. And do you know what? I mean, I liken my role in life to being a general practice doctor. Yeah, yeah. In, in that you'd expect your doctor to diagnose that you might have high blood pressure, might need migraine tablets, you might need your corns doing, and all the rest of it. Mm. But you wouldn't expect him to do all of those yeah, things. Yeah. You just need him to recognize the issue and then point you in the right direction and I, yeah yeah on tv talking about all these kinds of objects and they don't realize that no i mean it's interesting because the thing that it's in the, the thing if you want the full track record so what happened to me was at 13 um it sounds like jeremy carl this no i <laughs> i went i went on a school trip to the worcester porcelain museum right. uh, okay and i met henry sandon yeah and henry sandon showed me a cup which is obviously a curved surface mm -hmm. And it, it was painted by Harry Davis mm. with Big Ben on it. Mm. And obviously, if you're going to paint a straight line on a curved surface, you can't paint a straight line because mm -hmm. it looks curved. Mm -hmm. And this kind of, and then Henry told me that the colours on this vase, when they're painted, they aren't the colours how it, you know. And I just thought, I was captivated by this as a kid. So something there grabbed you, didn't it? Yeah, it there did. Was, I think that we all have those little yeah. moments where just something sort of yeah. pings in your brain and go, oh, actually, I really do love this stuff. It did. And then what happened to me was I got a bit better at rugby and cricket. And um, so I went to Loughborough, um, basically, to play rugby and cricket. And when I came out, I mean, I never really wanted to teach, if I'm really honest. And it was like, they, it's like, you know, you're a teacher now. Really? Mm -hmm. Honestly? I can't see you doing that. No, neither could I. No. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I think probably my greatest contribution to society is not teaching, because I <laughs> saved a whole generation of children from complete and utter, you know, educational devastation. Well, you're a very well-loved TV presenter. You're a very well-loved TV personality oh, in antiques. Come well, on, you really are. You I, are. Well, we've had a good, we've been doing a lot of searching yeah. around before meeting you today. We were trying to figure out what people most wanted to know about you. Um, oh, and we dear. found a lot of comments. A lot of people want to take you to the pub. Um, yeah, yeah, uh, yeah. A lot of people. Um, you're their favourite. Present expert, though. Yeah, yeah. Be an expert over yeah. and over again. Blunt. Favorite yeah. blunt. <laughs> but then we did. So we did some research on the social on social media and just sort of came up with a few things. Can we shout them out? Do you know? This morning I discovered that somebody's trying to be me. Oh, you impersonated you. That, that I'm Philip Serrell on Twitter, and they are Serrell Philip. I don't, know who the hell, I don't know who they are. Well, if you're out there, let us know. And uh, well, no, I just pretty slightly freaks you out. Yeah, it does a bit, you know, because it's just sort of why would you do that? I mean, if I was going to be anybody, I probably wouldn't want to be me. <laughs> I'd rather be somebody who's <laughs> oh, thirty good. years younger, three <laughs> older. Go on, Kaylee, shout out some questions. So, so, what people want to know? Um, you've got this long career, your own successful business, but all they want to know really is about the scarf. Um, so my daughter bought me a scarf 
<clears throat> so my daughter bought me a scarf years and years and years and years and years ago. And the first weekend that we were filming Bargain Night, it was cold, it was November, and I walked into the green room, which is just telly speak for a big a cold room. Yeah. With a bench in it. Look, yeah. look at you with your green room on Bargain So I walked into the green room, right, and, and I was taking my scarf off, and the salmon walked up to me and said, what are you doing? I said, I'm taking my scarf off. <laughs> <coughs> <laughs> I'll start there. Get some water. No, I'm good, thanks. We are definitely recording. Yeah. Here. <laughs> okay. So, the scarf. So, we first recorded Bargain in November of 1999. It was a bitterly cold day. And I walked into the green room, which is a television term for a cold, horrible room with a few chairs scattered around. Look at you fancy with the oh, green no, room. No, 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 no. And, um, and I had this scarf on, and I was taking the scarf off, and the same man walked up. He said, what are you doing? I said, I'm taking my scarf off. He said, don't do that. I said, why is that? He said, because I can hide my mic in the scarf. Right. Right. He said, it makes me look really good. I said, mm, all right, then. okay, fine. So I thought I'd do the one programme. This is November. And they said to me, do you want... they rang me up about a week so I said, do you want to do another one? I said, yeah, okay. This was in December, equally cold. I walked into the green room, about to take my scarf off. Sam, I said, no, 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 he said, don't take your scarf off. He said, because I can hide my mic in here, right. and it makes me look same really guy, good. Yeah, same bloke, yeah. yeah. I said, okay, fine. And then they said, do you want to do another one in January? And it wasn't quite so cold, so the scarf was in the car, yeah. never far away from one. And um, the same man said, where's your scarf? I said, it's in the car. He said, go and get it. He said, because the way you tie that, he said, I can hide my mic in here. <laughs> And it makes me look really good. No, so, it simply comes down to... So come August, I'm the only bloody idiot walking around with a scarf. Well, it's become like your trademark now, hasn't it? But I wore, in fairness, I wore them before. And now every... Charles Hansen wears a scarf. How dare he? Oh, Paul Charles, Martin. look at them. Do they just... They're just Charlie Hansen, him. he's like a puppy. You, you never, <laughs> he might be listening to them. I don't care. You, I told him to. So you never know he's going to pee on the carpet or something. Look at your hand. Absolutely amazing. You heard it here first. <laughs> Charles Hansen, to quote, is yeah. like a Puppy. Yeah, you never know he's going to lick your hand or pee on the car. <laughs> but you started wearing scarves. People are getting on your bandwagon, your scarf bandwagon. Oh, I know, I know. I'm wounded. I well, never, there is ever a thought... question about that. Somebody said, we see a lot of presenters on outdoor TV programmes who are wearing specially knotted, loose-fitting scarves. What is the significance? They seem to be implying you're part of some sort of secret society. They're just trying to be Philip, aren't they? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. OK, so there is no weird secret. Really? Listen, let me just tell you, if I was wanting to be anybody on television, it wouldn't be me. <laughs> <laughs> just but... I'd also like to talk a little bit, I mean, and feel free to give decline. a rendition yeah, or decline. No, I'm not <laughs> no, I'm but I would, I did not know this about you before you coming, and I know you well, Philip, but I did not know this about you before doing some research that you um, have had a number one. Oh, yeah. And you're sort of slightly grimacing there, but. Come on, this is... I knew nothing about this. You're too young to know Les Dawson. I am not too young. <laughs> Thank <laughs> you. I appreciate that. You know Les but... Dawson's piano playing? Yeah. <laughs> well, I can sing it. What did you do? Yeah. The coronet as well. Apparently you're very accomplished. So that, 2017, Sleigh Ride. Yeah. Number one, Amazon Rock Chart. 2018, Rock with Rudolph, number one. Number two, sorry, in the iTunes Pop Chart. And 2020, Merry Christmas, everyone, number two in the iTunes Pop Chart. <laughs> I've got, you know, it was just the most ridiculous. I mean, I can't. What's that think... about? Where did we get to Because of his illustrious music career. <laughs> so, this lovely man from Charlie Ross, Charles Hansen, James Braxton, and myself. Now, I can't sing, but trust me, I'm better than James Braxton. Well, we've seen, yeah, we've watched this one. <laughs> no, he's worked. <laughs> and they said, we want to do this Christmas single. Mm. And uh, so I just thought, yeah, it'll be, you know. A recording studio. So we went to this recording studio and it was just fantastic. And I thought that would be the end of that. And then there was a... <laughs> but, but Bob's just the most delightful man you could ever wish to meet. So we, so I dragged him along the following year to, and, and he's got this iconic voice and he kind of did an intro at the beginning yeah. of this track that was gold. And, and, you know, I mean, do you remember... In the school Christmas panto, you know, if you were if you were good, you were Mary or Joseph, mm -hmm. and if you weren't, you were sort of third crab on the right. Yeah. My or, child is playing hay, yeah, yeah, yeah. or a piece of hay. Yes, yeah. yeah. Or you know, in the school band, I'd have been the triangle player. Right. 
no, the coronet. No. 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 Okay. And so, you know, it's kind of it's very difficult to hide mm -hmm. when there's only four of you singing and, you I, this, and i think i think we raised sort of seventy thousand pounds just yeah. doing that and all profits going yeah. towards it that's a great thing that we can do in our line of work and yeah it is and, and television does that i mean sometimes it can i mean i mean as you we all get i mean i you know you get people you know we're organizing um a caravan club no i better not say <laughs> people think you can travel the length of britain you know, and sometimes they don't realise that actually you, your job is as an auctioneer. <laughs> yeah, you actually have and, a day job. And, yeah. and you do have a life, yeah. you know. Um, do you do the WI rounds? Sometimes. They love you the WI, don't they? Yeah, yeah, well, you know, that's kind of... I'm older than most of them, I think. <laughs> No. Yeah, no, no, I don't think so. Really? Uh, no, I don't know. The new breed of WI now, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, younger exactly. women getting involved, isn't it? Um, call me girls. <laughs> yeah, can I imagine you doing that, Kev? Should we fire some questions at you? Yeah, yeah go on. Okay, quick fire. Go on, you go for it, Kev. You kick off. We're going to some quick just, fire. Yes, no interlude. Yeah, go for it. Um, what's the weirdest item you've ever been asked to value? Value or sell? Or sell. So I used to do a lot of insolvency work years and years and years ago, and I once had a container, I've got to get my words right here, a container full of condom-filled walnuts. Hang on a minute. Right. <laughs> right, let's let's just take a minute for that. What? A, a container filled of... They were like these novelty things, you know, and clearly you you wonder why the firm had gone bust. Oh, the best one ever. <laughs> this bloke, this bloke invented a machine to get the last bit of toothpaste out of the tooth tube, toothpaste tube. Have you tube. sold that machine? No, this just gets better because, so basically, yeah. if you can imagine the last little bit of toothpaste mm -hmm. in the tube, right, how do you get it out? Yeah. Well, this bloke invented... You don't, you just go away and get, get another paper. Well, that's what you would do and yeah. that's what I would do. Yeah. What this guy did was invented a machine to get the last bit out of the toothpaste tube, which is great, except it was about six foot tall, right, <laughs> and it was about three feet in diameter and it filled with water. Right, and it relied on water pressure to get the last bit out of the toothpaste okay. tube, which works a treat, except it pulled the plasterboard wall of his bathroom down. Right, okay. Did you have to sell this? Well, that would value it. I had to value it. And, and, I mean, what did you put on that? Not much. 80, 81 20. <laughs> yeah, the old auction. <laughs> so, I mean, we didn't sell it because you, know, you couldn't sell anything like that. Yeah. So, what is the most memorable item you've ever sold? What's the best thing? Everybody's going to ask you this question. Everyone asks What's the most expensive? Money? But yeah. I don't think that's always the most interesting, is it? I get asked that. What's the most expensive thing you've ever sold? That's what people want to know. Yeah, no, well, I, I won't tell you that. I mean, I sold things for six figures, but the most memorable thing, because I didn't know what it was, mm. was I sold a... I went to a house a mile from the side of Malvern, yeah. and I found a mother of pearl dish. Right. And I said to the people... I think this is worth three to five hundred quid. No, actually, that's a lie. They said to me, "We think this is a good thing. What do you think it's worth?" And I said, "Well, I haven't really got much of a clue, but I think it's, it should be three to five hundred pounds." And I don't know where that came from, mm -hmm. and I don't know why I said that. Um, but I took it back to. The, they said, "Great, take it away and sell it." So I took it back to the showroom and I put it on a shelf and I left it there for three months. Yeah. Whilst I thunk about it. Yeah. And then I was at an antique dealer's shop. That's um, what we do, isn't it? We put things on. If we don't know about it, we put it shelf and just keep yeah. looking. What is that? And I went to this, it's like I'm in your office now. Mm. There was a book on the table. Mm. And on this book, on the back page, on the back cover of this book was my bowl. And I thought, that's a bit odd. Oh, really? Yeah. So I said, and, and the car station, as we're talking now, I suddenly clammed up because I was looking at this book. Mm. And he said, what's the matter? I said, well, can I have a look at that? I picked this book up. And this was a piece of Gujarati, um, Mother of Pearl, um, between 1580 and 1610. Yeah. And so having found out what it was... I bet you were very pleased with yourself when you went to the clients. But it's luck, isn't it? Yeah. yeah but, but So what happened then was that I, I still wasn't really sure what it's worth. So I, I emailed a mate in town who said to me, Philip, put uh, 15 to 20 on it. And I said, 15 to 20 what? <laughs> he said, put 15 to 20,000 pounds yeah. and reserve it at 12. He said, if you get over 20 grand for it, you swim the channel. Was this a long time ago? As well? Not that long ago. So I put it in this, so I made 77,000. Wow. If you weren't in the auction business, what other occupation would you like to try? I always fancied being a professional sportsman, but if I'd have been half as good as I thought I was, I'd have been twice as good as I was. Work that one out. <laughs> Cricket or rugby? Either. What was the first lot you ever sold? 
I remember my first three lots that I sold were um, 10 hospital cast iron radiators that all had holes in them. I had a butcher's block with no legs, and the third lot was a tennis court net with one massive hole. Cracking lots, did you get them away? Thought, well, my first boss bought all three. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of looking yeah, up. You had to clear them, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, absolutely right. Yeah. Philip, you've been an amazing guest. Yes. Um, thank you so much for joining us, and um, we'll keep watching. Thank you for asking me. Hello and welcome to Object of the Week. This is the segment of the podcast where either me or Rachel will pick an item that we find interesting and we think you may also find interesting and discuss it a little bit. This time it's Rachel's turn. So what do you have for us? Okay, well, let me just hand this over to you and you describe what you've got in front of you. Okay, well, it's a tour programme. Yeah. It looks like it's 1960s. Yeah, you're right. Um, on the front, it's for Chris Montez and Tommy Rowe. I'm not quite sure who they are. <laughs> okay. So they were big names of the 1960s. They were like, you know, they were big deal back then. Okay. Not so that. Open, no, open it up. Have a look. Have a, just have a flick through the pages and see what you can see. Okay. I think I know why you're showing this to me now. We've got pictures of the Beatles inside. Yeah. So were the Beatles supporting on this tour? Yeah, okay, so we'll, yeah, let me tell you a little bit about this time and this sort of period. Okay, so this is a programme from 1963. Really, you know, just a normal looking little programme that you would pick up during the concerts during that time. It was for, it, yeah, like I said, 1963 for the Chris Montez and Tommy, Tommy Rowe tour. Now, what's really interesting about this is how many signatures can you see? Well, that's what I was going to say. So it looks like we've got the autographs of three of the Beatles. We've got um, Paul, Ringo and George. Yeah. John Lennon is missing. So what do you think? Did they just not get hold of John that time to to not get his autograph or what? It was quite unusual because at that time you would want four. You would want the whole lot. People would be waiting outside the dressing, not the dressing room, the side stage door and that type of thing. And you would kind of hope to get the full set. What's really interesting about this is it was one of the only times that the Beatles played as a three-piece. So, because John Lennon wasn't very well. Oh, I imagine how devastated you'd be if you went to see the Beatles. I know. I mean, and this was like the year in terms of the Beatles. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask. So in 1963, obviously I'm aware of all the Beatles music, so they don't live under a rock, but I'm not that sure in the context of years, what was going on for the Beatles in 1963? Okay, well, some say 64 is their big year because that's when they went stateside, but 63 was the year that Please Please Me came out. And that came out in March. Now this tour, this tour program is from the 10th of March. Oh, wow. So they were literally just exploding. This was the time for the Beatles. They, they hadn't gone to America yet, but they were touring like crazy in the UK. And they were sort of touring with people like Helen Shapiro and Roy Orbison. But they would start sort of way down the bill. So they were like supporting for yeah. massive acts. And then what happened as the sort of time went on and Please Please Me came out, it just went mad. It, it literally just went absolutely crazy. And they just worked their way up the bill to the point where they got later down the tour and they become in headlining, which was, which was just mad. You've got to imagine 1963. Okay, so let's let's imagine we don't have you know we don't have all the modern things that we have now. If you wanted to go and see your favourite band, you would have to go and watch them live. You know, yeah, they were making TV appearances on the BBC and all that kind of thing, but you would have to go and see them live, and you would have to queue up, and you would have to wait. And you, we've all seen the videos of the screaming fans. I think that's what we take for granted now, that music is so accessible, and, you know, whenever you want it, you can just play it from your phone, it's in your pocket yeah. all of the time. At this time, the bands were quite a little bit more mysterious. It was harder to access them, unless, as you said, you went in person. And I think going in person, 
when you see all the, how excited everybody else is, I can see how Beatles mania really took hold of people yeah. because it is just a grief experience, isn't it? And this was the year, I mean, they heavily recorded, they heavily toured in 1963. I mean, it was their breakthrough year in the UK anyway. And people didn't really know. And they just quickly in succession released, I mean, they released Please Please Me in March. And then in August, they released She Loves You. I mean, how how better way to just go, here we are, we're the Beatles, we're amazing, and we're just going to take over the world. And then the next year, they went to 1964, they went to America, and that was it. That was just, that was it. You've all got to remember that Paul McCartney was 21 in this year. Like, imagine a 21-year-old lad from Liverpool just all of a sudden producing this epic music and just getting the status that they did at that time but what i kind of love about this is this just gives you yeah we sell loads of beatles autographs because people have kept them and they've cherished them and what's really interesting about this is that there's just three names i like the story that john was ill on that day yeah he was probably knackered they were probably going absolutely mad. Apparently had a really bad cold and he couldn't play. And I just love the fact that this is just a little snapshot into that year, that world at the time. I just think it's really cool. Um, and, and then it just went it just went mad for them, really. Yeah, so at first it seems a bit disappointing that you're missing John Lennon, but actually it's part of the story of the Beatles, isn't it? And that was... As you said, one of the only times they played as a three-piece. Yeah. So to have experienced that is quite interesting. Well, yeah, it is. And, and it's really funny because the, the people that brought it in to me, well, this was acquired, you know, by the, the client's parents. So the parents, the mum, went to see them at the Birmingham Hippodrome. This is where they were, um, where they got the signatures. And they didn't realise, they were like, oh, it's disappointing that, that John Lennon hasn't hasn't signed it. Oh, what a shame that we haven't got a full set. But the, it's even better almost because it just has this lovely little story to it. And, you know, it's also signed throughout the programme by different people. But, I mean, it's just, they're so beautifully clean, these signatures. You can really see George Harrison, Paul McCartney and Ringo Starr. You can, they read like, they read, don't they? And you can just imagine people waiting outside and probably having a chat with them at the time because they weren't kind of all consumed by it then probably these these lads were they they were probably just new to it and probably really excited so you can just you can almost see it in your mind these people waiting for it so it was really interesting to tell the clients that actually no this is this is really cool there's a reason why John Lennon hasn't signed this one so I'm a huge Beatles fan I'm a huge music fan but I just kind of love this for it's for it's just part of history really so the big question i suppose with the autographs that people want to know is how can you tell if they're genuine or fake well yeah that is the big question and i think it just comes down to experience really i think there's the obvious things that we can we can look at for the way that certain members of the band will particularly um the beatles sign and they sign slightly different as years go on because they're quicker a little bit but if you look at under the high magnification first and foremost you can see the indent from the pen that's the first thing because a lot of the times these facsimile signatures which is for those who are not sure it's just like a printed signature and then what you'll find is people write over them well if you look under magnification at those not to get too technical and too boring i don't want to bore you out there um but you can see sometimes that there is a hesitation in the pen so what i mean by that is okay so if you were to sign your signature, you do it without do thinking. It. It's almost like second nature to you, isn't it? So, but if you if you look under magnification and you can see if someone's almost like considered stopped, what yeah, they're doing, exactly considered. So that's definitely what you don't want in a signature. And then I think it just comes down to experience of seeing these signatures and knowing how they should look. Also provenance so what does provenance mean for the people who might not know okay so provenance means that we can we can date it back we know where it's come from it's got a history you know this is from a birmingham family that lived 20 miles away from us that went to the birmingham hippodrome and got this signature and it's come through the family you know it's one of those that it's really difficult unless you have a photograph of the Beatles signing that program, you can't be a hundred percent. 
but provenance is one of those that you can you can just date it back you can go back you can see the history of this particular item from then in 1963 to now in 2022 so provenance is a big thing when it comes to music memorabilia I suppose what you really want to hear is the person's story and, you know, perhaps they might mention what the weather was like on that day. And yeah. you can verify those yeah. sorts of things, can't you? They... That's what I kind of love about, uh, I mean, how great is my job that I get to listen to people talking about their experiences of seeing bands. And most people can remember it because because the Beatles went absolutely crazy from then on. They can remember that first time they they saw someone i don't know about you but like your favorite band can you remember the first time you saw them very very clearly <laughs> exactly yeah. so and that, like or important people that are subsequently not here that you saw and it's just part of it's just part of your life at that time if you were in you were a teenager or whatever so i i love hearing the stories of how they've met their idols and how they've spoke to them and what they were like, what they said, because most people remember it. It's a really big deal to what a 16-year-old at the time meeting their idols. Yeah, cool. yeah, I think we've all been there and done that, anyone who's really into music. And it is and it is so nice to hear people's stories, isn't it, from their youth and seeing bands that are so legendary, yeah. but in a completely different context to, to how we know them, you know, as the poor acts. Yeah, imagine, imagine the Beatles being a support act. Insane, isn't it? I mean, it? but imagine seeing that Bill, Roy Orbison and the Beatles at the same time. I mean, Roy Orbison was the Beatles, like, they they really looked up to him. His music was mad at the time. So, gosh, and then to imagine just switch over to be a headliner above Roy Orbison, wow. It must have been very strange for both acts, I would imagine, yeah, to switch be, places on the bill. You'd probably be not too happy, would you, if you were Roy Orbison? But um, it's like listening to the vinyl. Obviously, we sell a lot. Of, we sell so many Beatles records. But it's like listening to the very first pressing of Please Please Me. I mean, there's nothing quite like it. It's like... Yeah, we can all get Alexa to play whatever song we want or we can listen on our phone and all these different things. But to listen to a Beatles record that was the very first pressing of Please Please Me, that's nothing better, it's, to be honest. It's an experience, isn't it, rather than just listening to music in the background. It, you yeah. can imagine yourself there. and being... yeah. it's, it's very cool. So, yeah, I think this is a really amazing item. They're almost difficult to, to put a value on, to be honest with you. What are you expecting roughly on this? Well, I don't know, because, yeah, OK, we've only got three signatures. OK, it's got a great history. What but... would you expect before then? Before, well, it depends how good it looks, how clean the signatures are. A lot of people like to frame them up, so it's how good the image is as well. But for four, well, we could be anything up to 2,000. I suspect this is going to be worth about 1,000 pounds. So we'll wait to see what it goes for in auction. Exciting times. Thank you very much. So we've got a little game for you to play. It is called Smash Cash Stash. We've got three objects here, which Rachel will reveal. Ta-da! I will actually pull back the... Oh, God, be very yeah, make sure you don't knock them over. I'm going to bring these three items out, but you probably can't hear me very well. So that's either by Harry Davis or Ernest Barker. Oh, very good. Okay. Oh, that's that Will Farmer tack, isn't it? <laughs> right. Your favourite billet. Chinese stuff. What have I got to do? So, if you wouldn't mind, just just roughly, kind of, quickly describing what you can see and then tell us out of the three which one you would smash, which one you would sell for cash and which one you would stash away if you had to. Am I allowed to pick them up and look at them? Yeah. Yeah, you can. Okay, can you pass? Yes, go on. So, the first one is a Royal Worcester vase uh, painted with sheep. We will put pictures here um, up so you can have a look at these. Somewhere between 1905 and 1910. <laughs> so bang on. By Harry Davis. Um, and he was the best painter in um, at Worcester. I just think he's probably one of the best ceramic painters of the 20th century. And it looks like it's perfect. And I would get for that. In today's world, I think I get between two and two and a half thousand pounds. Okay, so, so that's, that's the that. first item. Yeah. The next is is a jug. It's just a jug. What does it say? It's got on the bottom bizarre Clarice Clip Newport pottery. 
And there's a bloke upstairs called Farmer who I get. <laughs> it's all about the patterns, though, isn't it? Do you think that's a rare pattern or not? Does it's, absolutely nothing for you, does it, Philip? It's kind of orange and green and blue and yellow. Okay, no interest in that whatsoever. And a Chinese pot. Well, see, one of the things that somebody said to me about Chinese pots are you really, really want some good collector's labels on the bottom. <laughs> and you want those two blue lines around there. Oh, you are listening then. Yeah, I try to. So I would think this dates to, but this has had two handles broken off it or something, hasn't it? Because there's two kind of filler marks there. There's a firecrack there. But I would think that dates to somewhere between, um, I don't know, 16, 18, 17, 40. Oh, that's so fun. I'd be horrified if someone showed that to me. And I would <laughs> think that that is worth, I haven't got a clue really, but around a thousand pounds. So okay. on that basis, I'd probably smash that Claris thing because it might be a fake. Okay, so you're going to smash the Claris? Yeah. Which you're going to stash? Um, I like the blue and white pot. I do like that. Mm -hmm. um, but I've got to keep the piece of Harry Davis, haven't I, really? So you tell me now. Right, so you're going to... What are you going to do with the blue and white? No, I'll keep it. You're going to keep it, so you're going to stash it. Yeah. And then you're going to cash yeah, 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 the yeah. Worcester pot. Yeah, and I'll smash Clarice. <laughs> oh, I don't know. Well, I'm sure we'll all that. Shall we reveal what we have? Yeah. Yep, so you were spot on with your uh, piece of Worcester. That is 1908, so exactly bang in the middle of when you said, uh, decorated by Harry Davis, as you said. Our estimate is very, very conservative on this. Uh, we put four to 600 on it. Would you like to take a check now? <laughs> you can come to the sale <laughs> later this week if you're interested um the piece of clarice is 1932 so it's right yeah yeah it's uh, the pattern is orange roof cottage and it's on the lotus jug so that's probably a thousand pounds worth is it higher it's uh, is it really yeah three to four thousand pounds worth hell teeth and buckets of blood <laughs> and then the uh, chinese pot is 1680 kangji period um blue and white two to three thousand pounds but the thing in this world is though you've got to like the stuff haven't you? exactly you know and, and and what i love about this business is that will and i could talk for hours and 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 as but I, the claris is always going to float his boat yeah. it's never going to float my boat and it's like i said earlier i think it's a generational thing yeah you know, I mean, I think that blue and white Chinese pot is just lovely. It's absolutely beautiful. You were right. It's not missing handles, though. This is an incredibly rare pot. It's not missing handles. It's missing silver mounts. So it was made for the European market, so it would have had silver mounts on it. So probably not worth as much as something that would have been made for the Chinese market. Not necessarily. <laughs> What's really interesting about this is that it's an incredibly rare shape. Put it this way, I've not seen an example in that shape in my 20 years in this business. And what I really love about this, Rachel, is you see you've got three pots there that sum up you, Will and I. <laughs> yeah, totally. Haven't we? Yeah. Because I've got the shape good. of the two on the left. Yeah. <laughs> well, thanks so much, Philip. You've been an amazing guest. Thank you so much. And we look forward to where can we see you next? Where what, what are you filming next? No, some street corner. <laughs> no, it's well, you know, I'm just um all over the BBC. You just do what your stuff does. You do what you do, don't you? It'd be amazing. Thanks, Philip. Thank, Thank you so you. much. Thank you for asking me. Thanks, bye. Brilliant. Thanks so much for joining us. We had a really great time with uh, Phil Serrell, so that was brilliant. If you want to learn more about him, you can find him on Twitter or go to serrell.com. Uh, and fieldings at auctioneers.co.uk, you can find Kaylee and I. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye.